You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Um, Our sermon reading today will be taken from the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 21. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 36. Uh, If you have the Blue Church Bibles, it will be found on page 1118. So again, it's Acts of the Apostles, chapter 21, from verse 1 to 36. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed unto Syria. We landed at Tyre, where the ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go unto Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued a voyage from Thai and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who had prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us home from Nathan, where we were to stay. Who was a man from Cyprus and one of the disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law? 
They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise the children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him to the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested them and ordered them to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by its soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Thank you very much, Imo, and hi, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at City Church. Uh, you are joining us. Um, as we are trekking through the book of Acts. We're in a kind of part of uh, the story of Acts where we're following particularly the Apostle Paul and the adventures that he has along the way. And we're in a section which, over the last few weeks, Paul has been heading towards Jerusalem, And today we find out what happens at the end of that journey and indeed what happens when he arrives. Lots in it, as we've heard from the reading. So let's ask for God's help as we unpack this. Why don't you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word being living and active. We thank you that you know each one of us deeply and you know the circumstance which we come here today. You know the details of what we've been through and you also know the details of what is to come. And so we anticipate that in your wisdom, 
in your goodness and in your love, the truths that we will unpack this afternoon will be vital for our ongoing endurance, our ongoing perseverance in the faith, and our ongoing trust in you, no matter what lies in wait for us. Amen. Let me tell you about a guy called Horatio G. Spafford and his family. He was a very successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago, and he had an amazing family, a very large family. He was married to um, a woman called Anna, and they had five children. They had some challenges, but God had allowed them to overcome them to a degree, and they were taking a time of rest and relaxation. That's what they're anticipating. I guess like many of us going into these summer months, expecting to slow down, recover a little from the last months previous. And so on November the 21st, 1873, the family were due to take a French ocean liner, the Ville de Havre, to cross the Atlantic from the US to Europe. Just before the family were going to board the ocean liner, an urgent message came to Horatio that for business needs, he needed to stay. He needed to sort it out. And so he agreed and said to the family that they were to go on ahead And he would join them in just a few days. After about four days into crossing the Atlantic, the ship collided with a very powerful uh, Scottish iron-hulled ship called the Loch Erne. And suddenly every single passenger on board was in great danger. The ship started to sink. Anna hurriedly brought her four children onto the deck and she was there with their daughter Annie, their daughter Margaret Lee, their daughter Bessie and their baby girl, Tanetta. And in the panic of the ship taking on water, they prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the Ville du Havre slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic Ocean, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. Baby Tanetta was ripped by the rushing waters from her mother's arms. Only Anna was to survive. Another one of the ship's survivors later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Suffering is a confusing thing for Christians, is it not? We kind of have suffering interwoven right throughout Scripture. 
We know that suffering is interwoven right throughout our lives, and yet when suffering falls upon us, it always feels like a surprise, and it always threatens to utterly dissolve our confidence that God is good. Well, this passage that Imo has just read to us from Acts chapter 21, this passage gives us three gifts for the suffering Christian. Point one is this, the gift of awareness. The gift of awareness. I've been, um, I've been watching a, a TV series recently. Uh, it's called Hijack, and it stars Idris Elba. And you can tell from the name that the plot isn't very subtle, can't you? It's an aeroplane, a passenger airliner that has been hijacked with about 240-plus passengers on it. If you are a fearful flyer, this is not the series for you to watch. I'm just putting that out there as a warning. But the first part of the story of Hijack revolves around this aeroplane that's been hijacked uh, with all of these people on board, and they're all utterly terrified, and they're completely traumatised, but nobody on the ground knows that it's going on. The people in the air are utterly alone, trapped in this metal box in an absolute nightmare. And nobody knows. Nobody knows. The reason I mention that is because I think there is a danger that this is how we feel when we find ourselves in a situation that is fear-inducing or nightmarish or, or, or way beyond our control. We can often feel alone, can't we? And, and I don't just mean isolated from each other, but I mean isolated from God. That's how we can feel. Because we think to ourselves, God is supposed to be the one who's all-powerful and he's supposed to be looking out for us. And that means he either doesn't know or he doesn't care. Either way, when we face suffering, we can often feel that we have been utterly, utterly abandoned and we are completely alone. But the first gift I want you to see for the Christian facing a storm, the first gift is the confidence that God is aware. You see, the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, it says that if you're doing Christianity right, then it shouldn't hurt, and your path should always only be happiness. But that is a blatant contradiction to the spirit-filled believer in Acts. Can you see that? You see, throughout the chapter that we've just been reading, repetition after repetition after repetition is the reminder that Paul will suffer. He's going to suffer a very harsh storm when he gets to Jerusalem, but we're told that it's neither outside of God's awareness or outside of God's control. Look with me at verse 4 of our passage. We're told, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Meaning that the Spirit of God had revealed to the Christians that he meets in a city called Tyre what will happen to Paul. It's the Holy Spirit who's actually revealing it. 
And these are compassionate friends who are absolutely horrified at the idea of their friend suffering. And so they're trying to persuade him not to go. But look with me at verse 8. In verse 8, we're told that when he stays in the house of Philip in Caesarea, Philip's daughters also prophesy. Now, this is most likely mentioned because every single prophecy in this chapter is the same revelation that Paul will suffer when he gets to Jerusalem. And I think we're meant to, to see that they're prophesying about that too. In verses 10 to 11, look with me, verses 10 to 11, we meet Agabus. Now, he's a guy who reveals a message from the Holy Spirit, but this time in kind of the style of some type of street theatre. Did you notice that? And he's saying exactly the same thing. The Holy Spirit is revealing, Paul, you will suffer when you get to Jerusalem. Now, let me put it like this. Imagine this morning, right, when you woke up on this Sunday morning and you did your quiet time, okay? You've got your coffee, you've got your Bible open, I don't know how you do it. But imagine God in his goodness to you in your quiet time this morning reveals to you, reveals to you that Monday morning, that is tomorrow, you're going to be fired. That's quite a quiet time, right? You take that on board, you get on a bus or a tram or perhaps you jump in the car as you're driving to City Church this afternoon, you look out the window and you see a massive billboard Um, and it's a billboard of the next series of the BBC's Apprentice with a big, you know, Sir Alan Sugar, you know, the bearded kind of businessman with his big finger out saying, you're fired. And after the quiet time this morning, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I got the message. And then you get to church and you enjoy the service and you go out for tea or coffee or, or cookies afterwards and then another uh, Christian, perhaps member of the church, comes up to you and, and says, hey, actually, the Holy Spirit has revealed to me that tomorrow is going to be a really hard day for you. And what would you say? You, well, you probably thinking to yourself, I know, I know, I know, I get it, I get it, I get it. Stop banging on about it. It's going to be a hard day tomorrow. Well, actually, actually, that would be to miss the gift, the comforting realisation that you are about to enter a very hard situation, but you are not spiritually alone because God is aware. And if he is this desperate to remind you that he knows about your coming pain, then he will be desperate to walk beside you as you experience it. Isn't that a gift? Well, here's here's a little application. If you're anything like me, you spend so much time kind of thinking about avoiding suffering or when you find yourself in suffering, so much time and energy trying to get out of suffering. Have you ever stopped to ask the question if God is actually calling you to a season of suffering? Have you ever stopped to ask that question? Or are you just too focused in avoiding it or getting out of it? Have you dared to consider, have you dared to consider that if we saw all things, I mean, All things, just like our loving heavenly Father sees all things, 
Have you ever dared to consider that we would, with trepidation, choose exactly the same path of suffering that we're going through? Have you dared to consider that this season is for your good and not for your harm? Now, these are hard questions, but they're worth asking, aren't they? I think this passage calls us to reflect. Well, come with me to point two, our second gift, and it's the gift of companionship, the gift of companionship. Did you notice when Imo was reading this passage, you know, Paul's journey to Jerusalem, that part, it had more dramatic goodbyes than Elton John's farewell concert tour. Did you notice that? Look with me at chapter 20, just across the page in verse 38, or in our chapter, chapter 21, verse 5, or in chapter 21, verse 16, the word accompanied is repeated to describe the crowds of Paul's friends who are walking with him for as long as they can go. You see, amidst the farewell parade, we're given the specific names of four individuals. Did you read those? And we're told that not only their name, but also the role that they had in the early church. We've got Philip, the evangelist. We've got Agabus, the kind of theatrical prophet. We've got Manasseh, one of the first disciples. We've got James, the key leader in the church in Jerusalem. They're all given a name, and we all understand a little title of what they do. Now, Paul isn't collecting them on his way to the Jerusalem showdown like some type of first century Ocean's Eleven, though if he was going to do that, I'd want to see that film, wouldn't you? No, it's almost as if the Lord gifts him key companions, perhaps only for a short while, to encourage, to equip, and to prepare him for the tough storm ahead. Do you see that? So you've got Philip. Now, Philip, if you'd read earlier on in Acts, he's one of the very first kind of deacons of the church. He's the guy who led the African government official to Christianity. And what an encouragement to see a fellow missionary to non-Jews. And that's who Paul gets to meet on his way to Jerusalem. And he gets to meet his family. Do you see that? His four daughters. All believers. It's almost as if Paul gets to meet the second generation of Christians in the early church because Philip was with them at the very beginning and here's his family and his children and their believers too. It's like the next generation coming up. It's almost like Paul is getting a glimpse of the youth group as a reminder that no matter what happens to him in Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ is in very good hands. We're told that the four daughters were unmarried. That suggests that they were very young. We're told that they all prophesy, which suggests that they're believers. And more than that, they're on fire for Jesus. Doesn't that make your heart sing to think about that? Let let me put it like this. Doesn't it make your heart sing to think that in the future, this church could well be in very, very safe hands? In the hands of, um, say, um, anointed favour Amardin, 
or uh, Benji Witt, who could be our next set of interns in the future. How do you feel about that, Nick and Stu? Or Annabelle, leading the, the singing on the band, or Eliza Duong, heading up Welcome, or, or Geneva Fapahunda, looking after Connect, Hannah Retty, well, she'd do a great job with Equip, wouldn't she? Jonathan Naranajan, well, he could be preaching, Lily Freeman, Gable Falks, and Thomas Yu, all as trustees. Could you imagine? Doesn't your heart sing to think? The church should be in safe hands as that next generation comes through. What an encouragement to Paul to meet the on-fire daughters of Philip. What an encouragement as you face a situation that will make you question whether it's all been worth it. And then from the youth, we actually see that Paul actually gets to meet the old guard. We're told specifically the name of the man is Manasseh. We're told specifically that he's one of the very first disciples of the early church. And that means he was part of the original core team right at the very beginning of the book of Acts. He is the guy who has seen the church in Jerusalem grow from a handful in an upper room to multitudes. He was there amidst the very first persecutions. He saw the baptisms firsthand. And most importantly, he is still going on as a believer in the Lord. What an encouragement to Paul as he faces a situation in Jerusalem that will make him question in the midst of suffering whether it has all been worthwhile. And I think that's actually a word for us here this afternoon. You see, within this church community, there will be those who are part of the launch team, those who were here at City Church within the early years. Who've seen it all. They've been here for the death threats, the bomb threats. They've been here to to witness right across the board the 50 baptisms. They've been through the tears and the joys. And they're right here amongst you, your companions. Or or then there's the senior saints here at City Church. I mean, I don't know what age that is at City. Is that over 30? (laughs) But people who have actually lived some life. They've been through the hard moments. They've been through the difficult relationships. They've endured the miscarriages, the redundancies. And they're still going with the Lord. And they're still fighting to serve Jesus. And they are your companions too. And then at City Church, you have the new blood. Those people who have come through the doors. Perhaps it's only a few years, or perhaps it's only a few months. But you love the church, you love the city, and you have said, actually, I want to put my time and energy to strengthening the work here. Well, they are your companions too. I deliberately use the word companions because friend is often too loaded a term in our culture. But my point is, none of us know, do we, precisely what storms lie ahead. But if you think you can face them by yourself, you will be crushed. Rather, God, who loves you, and who sees what is coming your way, has gifted you these people in this church, 
sat beside you or in your connect groups because these are the companions who have been ordained by God to encourage and equip you to face whatever is coming down the road in your direction. You see, to not, to not get to know to not get to know these people who are strangers and get to know their names, to not go regularly to opportunities like Equip or Book Group or Connect or, or part of the service teams. Well, that is a tragedy because it is to leave the gift wrapped present from God Almighty under the Christmas tree unopened, untouched. That is a tragedy. Just look around you for a moment. Dare to kind of break that wall that we have. Just seriously, just turn to a person next to you and look at them. Even though you guys on the balcony, I see you too, just look around. This is the team that God has put together in the same place, the same time, so that you might be prepared, encouraged and equipped for whatever it is that the Lord might have in store for you. Ah, what a gift. Well, come with me to our third and final point, the gift of Jesus himself. We come towards the end of the passage and the gifts have been given. Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem. And I think for us, it's hearts in the mouth moment because ever since kind of uh, chapter kind of 20, we've been anticipating that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, it's going to be hard. There's a storm coming. We just don't know what it is. We get to Jerusalem. We're about to find out what the storm is. And of course, our big question is, will the gifts actually work? So what is the question, what is the storm that Paul actually meets? Well, look with me at verses 20 to 26. The church in Jerusalem is in confusion. And it's in confusion about how the Jewish cultural practices will fit within Christianity. Lots and lots of Jews have become Christians and they're wrestling with, well, what do we keep and what do we drop of our old culture, our old rituals? And what makes things worse is that a rumour has gone absolutely viral across Jerusalem that, that Paul is saying that, that believers should disrespect Jewish culture. And so you have this rather strange situation in our passages. Did you scratch your head when you saw it? Where someone comes up with an idea. Now, it's one of those ideas that you wouldn't want to take to, the, to, to Paul. You really wanted to want to take to Paul. I wouldn't want to take it to Paul. You could imagine the, the guys in Jerusalem having explained the situation to Paul, saying kind of like quietly in the corner, no, you ask him. No, 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 you ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. You tell him. After all, they're about to talk to Paul about a very difficult request. And this is Paul, the very guy who called out Peter in the letter of Galatians for refusing to eat with Gentiles. This is the guy, Paul, who wrote in Colossians chapter 2 about being very careful not to get caught up with all of the um, regulations about eating that food and not eating that and touching this and not touching that and having that festival and not having that festival. 
As you can imagine, the guys in Jerusalem nudging themselves and saying, you talk to Paul about it. No, you talk to Paul about it. And then one of them saying, look, look, Mr. Uh, 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 Paul, Mr. Apostle, sir, would, would you mind participating in a public Jewish cultural vow with a bunch of other people who were getting their heads shaved? And oh, by the way, would you pay for it? That's the request to Paul. And what does Paul say? Well, for the sake of not being a hindrance to the gospel, he says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I kind of weather, I kind of wonder whether Paul, having spent some time with Philip the evangelist, the guy who laid aside his own Jewish cultural rites and practices to win to the gospel, the Ethiopian eunuch, earlier on in Acts, I kind of wonder whether that made some, some small impact on Paul's decision there. Or Paul on his way to Jerusalem hanging out with Manasseh, who was an outsider to Jerusalem. We're told that he came from Cyprus to join the church, where no doubt in Jerusalem, as a man from Cyprus, he would have often felt the outsider in the church in Jerusalem. Manasseh, a guy who probably was very familiar with what it meant to lay aside your rights and your preferences and your privileges for the sake of the gospel. And I kind of wonder if that made some small impact on Paul for this decision. Well, by verse 27, look with me at verse 27, Paul, the celebrity Jewish convert to Christianity, he gets recognised in the temple. And a riot breaks out and Paul is rescued by Roman soldiers and he's carried off in chains with the cries of the mob in his ears who are screaming for his destruction. And so this is the final gift from God to a Christian who's facing a storm. And it's this. You get to share that moment of suffering with Jesus himself. You get to share that moment of suffering with Jesus himself. What do I mean? Um, about a year ago, I went to London and a friend of mine works at the Royal Albert Hall, which if you don't know, is a huge uh, concert venue in the middle of London, very prestigious. And he gave us a private tour uh, and he took us to the Royal Room. It wasn't the Royal Box where the kind of uh, Queen or now the King would sit and watch the performances. They're on show there, everyone's looking up, that's where the cameras are pointing. No, he took us to the room at the back, the Royal Suite, where they could wait, where they could just be themselves where they could laugh and where they could joke and where they could just relax. And just being in that room, just being in that space where monarchs throughout uh, recent modern history have been uh, to sit in their chairs, to touch the things that they touched, to see what they saw, it kind of meant I felt like I shared a little connection with them even though I've never met them in person. Well, in a very literal way, Paul in Jerusalem experiences what Jesus went through when Jesus was dragged away by Roman soldiers and Jesus heard the voices of his own people crying for his death and the release of Barabbas. 
You see, for Paul to suffer as Christ did, well, it connects him to Jesus in a very special way. And for Paul, this is the sweetness of this third gift. It's why the Apostle Paul can write, um, sorry, it's why Paul can say, just like Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, that we should rejoice when we share in the sufferings of Christ. And it's why Paul says in chapter 21, verse 13, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, he's not saying all of this because he wants to be a hero. It's saying this because he knows that there is something about suffering and staying faithful to God right in the midst of it that deepens your sense of intimacy with the Lord Jesus like nothing else. You see, when you suffer, you feel like the world should pity you. But if they only knew how your suffering draws your heart closer to Christ, then the world should envy you. I found a kind of strange and captivating beauty when I was preparing this passage in verse 30. Look at me at verse 30. It's the moment where Paul is right in the eye of the storm and the violence of the mob are around him and he's a moments away, he's literally moments away from being killed. And so in the height of the danger, do you see what happens in verse 30? He is carried, literally carried by soldiers into safety. Now, why that stood out is because right throughout the book of Acts, people are carried. It's a kind of sub-theme right through the book. And when people are carried, it's almost always to be moved into the path of life or healing or restoration. And so it's really significant that here in Jerusalem, at the very moment that Paul is about to follow Jesus into death, instead he is carried helpless into safety. And it is significant that when Jesus was on those very same streets of Jerusalem and the mob was calling for his death and the company of soldiers around Jesus were not there to protect him but humiliate him, it is significant that there was no one there to carry him. It is significant that Jesus went to the cross alone. It is significant that Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 53, that should he call, then 12 companies of angels would be ready to carry him away. And yet Jesus remains silent. You see, Jesus chose to take the very full force of the justice that you and I deserve for our sin, that is living in God's world and yet all the time pushing him away. We are like squatters who bar the door to the person who actually owns the property and will not let them in. If you reject Jesus, you have to declare to God 
that when I die, I wish for no one to carry me. That is what you're saying if you push away Jesus. And that is why Jesus went to the cross alone, not carried, but only carrying his cross. And that is why we know, we who have put our trust in Jesus' death, we know that we will always be held. Not that we will always be carried away from death in the last moment, like Paul here in our passage, but we who have put our trust in Jesus, we know that even when we die, we will not go alone, but the Lord Jesus will carry us through death and into the new life of resurrection. Do you remember that story I was telling you at the very beginning? Well, Horatio Spafford, once he'd heard the tragic loss of all four of his children, he took the next available boat right across the water to Wales so that he could be united with his wife. And whilst he was on the ship, it passed over the spot where the children died. And it's there he wrote a very famous hymn called When Peace Like a River. Uh, These are four of the lines. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You can only sing that if you are confident that when the boat collided and his children were frightened, you could only sing that if you were confident that Jesus was with them. When they went beneath the water, you could only sing that if you were confident that Jesus was with them. You can only write words like this if you are confident that Jesus never left their side and that he carried them into the warm sunlight of eternal life where they would see Jesus face to face and there would be no more death or pain or crying for those children anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that suffering is something that we struggle so hard to keep a right and good perspective on. We thank you that this passage offers us a great reminder that we are not alone in times of suffering, but you are with us. We ask that we would be reminded by your spirit at work within us 
that the truths of the gospel mean that you will never leave us and always be by our side. And when the time comes for us to go, whatever our circumstance, whatever our situation, we will be carried in your gentle, tender, loving arms. Amen.